0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Talk to
1: each other about it. Plan it the way they want want to to plan it. Because it's not about us. It's not about the staff. It's about the person. It's about their precious family and friends. And we're really just there to help them to be as comfortable and as well as they can be.
2: You know that feeling when you're just super in awe of someone. Um, that's definitely how I felt about our next guest, Dr. Katherine Mannix, is an amazing, amazing palliative care doctor, and also an author of, of a great book called *The End in Mind*. And she's really, really challenging the conversation around how we deal with death—not just after it, but as it's happening. How we talk about it and she's she's really a remarkable person she's really 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 smart and i i really believe in what she does talking about what the end of life is is all about what it looks like the terminology we use um how important living in the now is and how important it can be to prepare ourselves for our own death yeah it's it's a great chat here she is The importance of -of end-of-life care can really never be understated, not only for the patient, but also for their families. It's something that Venetia and I have discussed a lot on the podcast before, both having experienced the special work that they do firsthand. This week, we have a really amazing episode organized as we're delighted to be joined in the studio by palliative care doctor and best-selling author Catherine Mannix. Catherine joins us to speak about how we approach loss and the grief that often follows. I've been looking forward to this episode for a really long time, mainly because I'm extremely passionate about the work that you do and what you're doing for people to help them. As someone who had never heard the word, pal- and I'm probably pronouncing it different than other people do because I have my American, I don't know if everyone pronounces it the same, but palliative care. I remember the first time I heard the word and I didn't know what it meant mm. at all. And people kept referencing it in a hospital setting and I I had to Google it to figure out what was going on. And I became more familiar with it um, after both my parents died. But uh, we have such little knowledge of kind of what we're doing when we get to that space, both the patient and the families. Um, And one of the things I love so much that you talk about is kind of preparing how we can prepare for those things and make them that little bit easier. Tell us maybe about where this started for you and why this is kind of a journey you've gone on. Okay, thanks, Sasha. Thank you so much
1: for inviting me. It's just lovely to be here. (laughs) So I started off thinking I was going to be uh, a cancer doctor, a cancer specialist. Mm. So I qualified from medical school and I did jobs in hospitals and I chose jobs that were going to be in places where people had really serious malignant illnesses. Mm. Um, So I worked in the regional haematology centre, so lots of people with leukaemia, and worked in the regional cancer centre. So by the time I was four years qualified, I'd seen lots and lots of people die and Mm -hmm. I think it's probably worth saying straight up that that's the 1980s and the chances of being cured of many of the diseases I saw people dying from are just so much better
2: now yeah
1: but when I was working in the cancer center what I discovered was that although that quest for the cure for cancer is the thing that draws everybody into cancer medicine The really, really interesting people for me, the people in our care who interested me the most were the people who knew they were not going to be cured. Mm. And they were doing that work in their heads of working out how to be, knowing that their life
2: expectancy was short. And that's the conversation that from reading your book and from knowing what what you talk about, it's like such a relief to hear people talking about Mm. it because people do not really talk about that process and how to handle that process and i feel probably even more in retrospect such a huge empathy for the person who is about to die because they're trying to navigate it yeah they're which trying is something to work out about yeah. yeah 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 they're trying to navigate it and 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 one of the things that you discuss is sort of there's denial there's different p- ways that kind of everyone kind of has a different mm-hmm. but there are certain themes that you do see where certain people can't accept it or they have what coping skills that they and and that can be as a family or the friends of a person can be very hard to know what to do Yeah, really right. support them.
1: Yeah. And in fact, we've all got our own coping strategies for things in life. Yeah, of course. So very often, the coping strategy somebody takes for something like this isn't a huge surprise. Mm. Because actually, they've always been like this. So if you think about the coping strategies people use for dealing with Christmas Mm. or Thanksgiving or, you know, huge family gatherings, there are people who just, yeah, it's going to be okay. And they shop at the last minute Mm. and they might wrap some presents. But actually... They're pleased to see you and it's all very laid back. There are people who've got lists. They start in about June. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's wrapped by September. Yeah. Um, they have to decide whether they're going to do turkey twice. because. It, so we've got Americans in our family as well. Are we going to do turkey for Thanksgiving <laughs> and, and for Christmas? Christmas? Yeah, it's a big choice. All, all of that. Yep. Um, and then there are people who whose ruthless list-making drives their very laid back family members absolutely bonkers and then the really laid-back people they're just not hurt they're just not helping because they're not doing it soon enough they haven't got everything planned by June Mm -hmm. because they're going to do it like a week before the big feast so it's not just how the individual person copes it's how our coping styles bump into each other and upset each other when actually we're we're both doing it right we're just doing it right
2: different ways yeah and do you think because you're so in the moment You know, during these experiences, we tend to be very much in the moment. You can't really be any other which way, because a lot of times I know a lot of the questions certainly that I would have asked the doctors is when will, you know, my mother, when will she die? Yeah. Will it be three weeks? Will it be eight weeks? Will it be a a year? And they can't really answer those questions. Not truly. (laughs) There's not really. And I think a lot of people find that very frightening because you have to live in the now. Because yeah. you don't know what the next day will bring. But living in the now, I think your coping strategies are probably quite different than something you can think about or plan.
1: I, well, I think that's probably true. And mm. in, in fact, I think we're caught between two stories here, aren't we? We're caught between the story of nobody can say. yeah, And... Okay we can say and it's the day after tomorrow yeah okay and in between that there is a space that's the real space mm-hmm. So I understand the pressure on doctors to try and give a length of time prognosis because I've been the very yeah. junior oncologist in that clinic with somebody saying but you know tell me doc tell me is it going to be is it going to be like am I going to see Christmas yeah. um, my, my um, kids starting school? After Christmas, will I survive I'll to see there, that? Yeah. Are my mothers flying over from Australia mm. in March? Will I be alive to see her then or do I need to bring her sooner? And actually, you can't know. It's yeah. not like uh, you know giving somebody change from a €10 Euro note. But you can guesstimate. Mm. And actually, instead of being backed into a corner where what you do is look at the statistics tables and say, well you know 50% of people with the illness you've got will still, still be alive in two years yeah. that's not helpful because we don't know which 50% you no. fall in and we don't know how far along the particular 50% that you do but fall that's in not really are. a failing of
2: medicine that's just a I guess, situation that we would probably be in no matter what it's true but
1: in fact if what you do is say to somebody listen I don't actually know yeah. Okay. So that that's the first thing. Can we teach doctors to, to say, say, I don't, I don't know.
2: know? And have us, yeah. Yeah.
1: And and actually, it's not that I don't know because I'm stupid or ignorant or haven't learned yeah. it. It's because, it's because we don't nobody know. knows. Exactly. Um, but I can tell you how we will guesstimate the time. Yeah. And then you can use that guesstimation tool to work out where you sit. Yeah. So this is the conversation that I would have. So when we're in our health and prime, like us obviously mm, clear um, then you know we're pretty much as well this year as we were last year we're pretty much as well this decade as we were last decade I know that I'm I'm a runner I'm a really slow runner yeah. I do it for fitness and headspace rather than for medals obviously <laughs> um, but I know that I run more slowly now no matter how hard I try yeah. than I ran a decade ago so my decline is beginning into old age. But my life expectancy measured against my decline rate is still decades. Mm. But the time will come when I'm slower from one year to the next. And then I'll know that my decline rate, my energy levels are declining year on year. Mm. Maybe enough years to make another decade, but we're certainly measuring in years, not decades and decades. Mm. So somebody gets an illness. And to start off with, it might not interfere with their life very much, or they might be able to have treatment with curative intent. And they're well again. But if it comes back and it starts to be life-threatening, what they will start to notice is that their energy levels will drop maybe noticeably from one half of the year to the next half of the year. So now we can see what the slope Mm. looks like. And later on, we might see that there's a change maybe from one month to the next and eventually from one week to the next. And each time we know that we're counting now in months and then Mm. we're counting in weeks And that helps us to know when is it time to get the family over? You know, if the mother's got to come from Australia, when When should she come? Because she wants to see you well enough to chat and have good times with her. She doesn't want to just stand at the foot of the bed of an unconscious person and say farewell. Of course. So the more people know, the better they're able to judge it for themselves, talk to each other about it, plan it the way they want want to to plan it and then give it back to the doctors and the nurses as this is what we're hoping for, is it realistic? Can you help us to achieve it? Because it's not about us, it's not about the staff. It's about the person, it's about their precious family and friends. And we're really just there to help them to be as comfortable and as well as they can be.
2: Have you noticed more people preparing for their own death and talking about that with their families? have we progressed in any way? I mean, I know for myself and my sister, we talk about it a lot because our parents didn't have any preparations really for theirs and we had to guess a lot about what they might want and need and make those choices, which is going to be a, can be a very heavy thing to carry because mm-hmm. you want to get it right and you don't 100% know and also you have to make decisions that nobody could want to make. Yeah. Um do you think people are progressing in terms of making their decisions for themselves and sort start of to saying to their family, I would like it to be this way, I would like these things and are feeling more comfortable talking about it than they used to?
1: I think some people are. I think that I've moved into a very odd universe since I wrote this book, yeah. because certainly on social media, the people who follow me and the people who I see chatting amongst themselves are people like the British podcast, You Mean the Big C, mm-hmm. um, or they are people who promote the conversation like death cafe and Mm. the death deck and people like that. And that gives me, I think a slightly distorted view, view. but back at the ranch where my friends and former colleagues are still working, they are still tearing their hair out at having to have this conversation Mm. anew, one family at a time. Mm. And the thing that we particularly see is that tension between a person who's sick, and needs to talk to people about the fact that it will progress and the fact that they will die. And they know that. And the people who are dearest to them are the people who they need in their team while they deal with that. But when they try to talk to them about it, either their own reluctance to make those people sad makes them draw back, or their family's reluctance. You know, People say, oh, mum, don't talk like that, you'll live forever. And what we do is we lock people away. I think I used it in the book the expression the cage of lonely secrets. Mm-hmm. That you're there and you know, and it's not you that's locked yourself in. It's everybody
0: who loves you who says, oh, let's not talk about that because it makes us happen. sad.
2: Yeah, of course.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at Bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
3: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. If you're looking for a safe haven to
2: express how you feel, share articles, photos, and memories of your loved ones, join the Grief Encounters Facebook group, a place for support, compassion, and empathy for those grieving. There's a passage in the book that actually it's, it's interesting that you mentioned it because it's probably my favorite in the book. It resonated so so much with me and I, I'm not going to read it because I will absolutely ball crying. Um, but you're talking about Sally and her family mm. in and her denial, whether or not it's her actual denial or the denial that she's expressing to her family about her that she's going to die. Um, and one of the things I thought that really struck me was in it, the doctor says, I'd like to speak to your family privately if that's okay with you. And you can you could hear her say like, well, why do they need to do that? Because there's mm-hmm. always, and I've been there, that feeling of the person wanting to know all the information in front of them and they don't want any private conversations, they don't want any secret conversations, they don't want anyone going off and talking about something um, because it's a lot of their um, autonomy, a lot of things are being taken away from mm. them. And they're lying there and people are making decisions and their families making decisions. It's very, I mean, I I can't say how much over the years since my parents have died, how much I've thought about that and what they must have been feeling lying there when people were making all these kinds of decisions and having all these conversations in hallways. And people were returning and their eyes were red and they had been clearly crying and what they were making of all of it um, and how we can do that better. I think, you know, when it comes to someone who is expressing denial, what is... You know, is it better to go on the road with them and kind of go go with their lead or is there any right way?
1: Denial is a really, really interesting phenomenon because Mm. if your denial is rock solid, (laughs) exactly, you know, if you are completely convinced that this doctor who thinks you've got cancer is confusing your test results with somebody else's. Yeah, And that happens. Yeah, Then you don't have to worry. You don't have to prepare. You don't have to have any distress because the whole thing is a ridiculous mistake. And when we discover it, how are we going to laugh? So this woman, I think, was exhibiting absolute denial. It wasn't like she had occasional moments of qualm. She was completely just okay. She agreed to come to the hospice because, I mean, she didn't say, I haven't got cancer. She said, I've got cancer and I'm going to get over it. Um, and the swelling that she had in her leg, which was because the cancer was blocking lymph channels in her, in her groin. Um, she said, oh, this is all because I've got a little bit of infection and a wound. And, you know, I just need antibiotics and I need to have more chemotherapy because there is still a bit of cancer there. And, you know, I can't have the chemotherapy while I've still got this infection. So it makes complete sense. It just starts to completely make sense. So I'm going to get better. And I've come to the hospice because you're really good at looking after people with swollen legs and pain from the swelling, which was true. So every bit of the
2: jigsaw that she chose to look at, was true, because sometimes hospices offer like different kinds of physical therapy and mm-hmm. things like that. So there are services. And I do think I have seen a lot of patients convince themselves that that's the part that they're in there for. Well, not most, the, mo-
1: well most people are. So yeah. the, th- the thing to really think about and something that's going to come out, I'm sure, tomorrow at the Irish Hospice yeah. Conference is... Is that most people use hospice inpatient beds. It's almost like our intensive care unit where this pain or this breathlessness or this distress, whatever it is, is so complicated that we can't just tweak the drug doses with you sleeping in your own bed and living in your own living room yeah. or you being on more you know, a surgical ward or the oncology yeah. ward or whatever. We need you where we can see the effect of each mm. individual dose. We need a specialist physiotherapist who's helping you with your mobility or, or whatever it is. So people come into hospice beds for an intensive period of symptom management. Mm. And certainly in the UK, you're more likely to go home after a period of hospice care than you are to die on your first admission and that's really really important to know Mm. and you're more likely to go home feeling better than you felt when you arrived but everybody thinks you leave in a
2: box i know and the thing about i mean you you are more likely to feel better because they are the most incredible places because the treatment and the care is so kind of, yeah, I think, I, mean, I, think, I don't want to generalize because I'm sure that they are different. I know my experience, certainly here in Ireland, was, you know, my dad lived a lot longer. He probably lived a lot mm. longer in a hospice than most people do, primarily down to kind of the care and the peace and the... Well, it's partly that, but it's partly that. And there's good
1: research now that shows this, that if you address the physical symptoms of the illness that's not curable, then people live longer. Yeah. So that's, you know, you take a chance, you go into the hospice, you're terrified that you'll come home dead. Not only do you not come home dead, (laughs) you come home feeling better and you have a chance that you may live longer. now It depends on the illness, it depends on lots of things. But actually the thing about hospice care is that it's about symptom management. So we're really obliged to say at this point that you're not definitely dying because the palliative care team sees you. You're not obliged to die because you've had a few days in a hospice or because a palliative care team's been to visit you in a hospital or at home. Yeah. You know, it's really, we're fine with it. If you get better again, that's great. That's yeah. absolutely marvellous. And a lot of people do. And in fact, increasingly, we've seen people at the very beginning of their illness journey where perhaps they've got symptoms that are so severe that they can't tolerate the treatment that would cure them. Mm. So you're seeing a palliative care team to settle your symptoms very early on. And working alongside you during maybe you're having very toxic chemotherapy for your cancer, maybe you're having, you know, the whole of the internal organs rearranged by a surgeon oh, yeah. to deal with a particular problem. The palliative care team will be co-working, managing the symptoms after the surgery to get you fitter sooner to get home or to start radiotherapy or chemotherapy. We see people now who aren't cancer patients, so it was very much a cancer origin as a specialty. Yeah but certainly now in the UK 50% of patients attending palliative care clinics or being seen by palliative care teams have heart failure liver mm-hmm. disease lung diseases you know anybody who we might be able to help with our expertise our door is open to and very often we're co-working with experts in that in illness that field, so yeah. you know if you've got really difficult heart condition you need a cardiologist in yeah. the team but it might be that the cardiologist can be helped by the palliative care expertise to get you fitter than cardiology expertise on its own can do. So it's all about teamwork.
2: When you mention the team, traditionally what roles are on a palliative care team? Because I've been with both in Ireland and one in America with my, my mom dying in America, my dad here. And they had it. They had Some similarities. I think some of the oftentimes there are similar roles within that kind of group. What is it normally or what does it look like for you? What kind of specialities do you have within it? So, when
1: I first started in the 1980s, the hospital palliative care team was I don't think it was even a whole nurse, it was a bit of a nurse. Um, And then there would be phone calls from the hospital across to the hospice to say, you know, we're really struggling with this symptom control. And one of our doctors, would go over and see a patient in hospital. And usually when we got there, we discovered that it wasn't really that they were bothered about the symptom control. They wanted the patient out of the hospital bed and into the hospice. So they misunderstood what hospice was about as well. Now, a well-staffed palliative care team will be really multidisciplinary. So there will be... Well, the the statutory minimum is that there is medical and nursing expertise. And by expertise, they mean people whose job is doing that for at least half of their week. So it's not somebody who is, you know, a nurse in another discipline, but she does a palliative care clinic. She must be a palliative care expert. Okay. The doctor has to be a palliative care expert. We've got official training to become consultants in palliative medicine now in the Republic of Ireland as well as in the United right. Kingdom. We have an association for palliative medicine that's for all of us, mm. both sides of the border over here yeah. and, and across for Scotland, Wales and England. Um, so there'd be nurses, there'd be doctors. In the teams that I've worked in, I've been very fortunate. We've had f- access to physiotherapy, occupational therapy, We've had access to clinical psychology, mm. chaplaincy people, a pharmacist we can ring with our drug interaction dilemmas. And then we just kind of drag other people in as we oh, need yeah. them, other particular experts. That's so Having great. social work expertise is really important. And perhaps the, the most unsung hero in a palliative care team is whoever is the clerical linchpin in that wheel that handles the messages books the appointments, gets back to patients and families, make mm. sure that we're going to the right place on the right day at the right time. Not an easy job. Yeah, that, mm. absolutely fantastic. And handling, of course, phone calls from distressed patients, from distressed families. And these are not people who've had clinical training. These are people who've had admin and clerical training. Yeah. So one of the other parts about the teamwork is that we have to look after each other, mm. that includes looking after the people who come in and do the housekeeping in our office and listen to our sad phone
2: calls. Yeah. It includes looking after the people who type our tragic letters. I'm sure you've had to answer this question before, so you don't have to answer it if it's a heavy thing. I'm sure it is. What coping skills do you have to deal with the fact that you've had to have so many sad conversations, I'm sure, and been, you know, just, I know for myself, even having the podcast, it is. It's such a wonderful thing to have. But there are days where I leave the office and I go into the bathroom and I cry mm. because I feel such grief and sadness for the person who has been on with us, yeah. and I wish it wasn't their story because you know it's just one of those things that you just you can't help but it touch your life. How do you cope with it?
1: I think that's a really great question, and I really should have an answer, and I'm thinking about the answer as I'm talking because I don't really know so I think the first thing to say is that the whole of medicine or nursing whatever discipline people come from is so broad that people can find their right place and I found in palliative care my right place Mm. that it's about being part of a team it's about not having to know all of the answers all of the time it's about having experts in the team who can lead instead of the doctor it's really important so I really enjoyed the teamwork I really enjoyed the clinical conundrum of coming in and trying to solve that pain that breathlessness those physical symptoms because those things can be eased and so every day I was helping somebody to feel better as well as hearing the dark night of people's souls and clearly one of the things where I was hearing that was in my cognitive therapy clinic where I was really helping people to explore some of those very dark and very difficult thoughts Mm. but also I chose to do palliative care I didn't choose to do bereavement Mm -hmm. and I really struggle with listening to people's bereavement stories Mm -hmm. I really struggle when I'm dealing with people who are grieving. Now, I don't suppose I struggle more than any other person. But what I'm saying is that because I'm comfortable talking to you on your deathbed about the fact that you're going to die and helping you to discuss with your family how it's going to be hasn't given me a special magic armour for how they are going to grieve when
2: you've died. I think it's so that I'm actually really glad you said that, because one of the things I'm trying to encourage as much in myself is to say, I'm not great at this either. Um, I'm not Because none of us are mm-hmm. right So bereavement and grief where none of us are good at it. There's not a person. I mean, yes, you meet people who just have a an empathy that just soothes the soul sometimes and they say the right thing and they just can make you feel. But most people struggle with what to say and what to mm-hmm. do. And I think it's really good, especially for people who work in this field and who are doing. De- to say it too, because it's almost like we're not coming from a place of, um, of being better than anyone else. Mm-hmm. It's not saying, well, we, we learned all this. we've read all these things. We've learned, so we know the right things to say. Even when I have a close friend or family member come to me and say, I've lost someone and you're dealing, I still feel that moment of, I hope I say the right thing. Yeah. I hope that I can help them and, in and in, in not, you know, screw this up and make sure that they feel better because I just want their pain to stop. Yeah. It must, you know, it must be That is the thing, isn't it? That actually to succeed
1: in grief work, we need to reach a place where it's okay not to make it better. Yeah. And that is so hard Hard. to be able to simply sit alongside somebody's howling distress, their rage and their emptiness, Mm -hmm. and not try to fix it because it makes me feel better exactly because actually i'm not again it's not about me is it it's about this person and their distress and it's hard the emptiness too is
2: such a good point because the emptiness can be one of the hardest things to sit with someone with Mm -hmm. um i felt a tremendous amount of emptiness in the first few months after my mother died i just felt nothing and it was actually the worst probably i'd felt Ever because I couldn't understand what was going on, yeah. but no one knew how to talk to me because I started. I had no, you know, I couldn't. I didn't know what I was doing. But that emptiness is something people don't really. We talk a lot about sadness. Mm. We talk about even depression. We talk about, the, but like grief and anger and grief and emptiness and grief and just like void of mm. can be, you know, that bitterness that can come out yeah. in people to weather that storm. You know, um, I have some people in my life who just who just. Stayed steady. Yeah. How, I don't know. But mm. they did. And they're my inspiration above all else because they just somehow managed to hunker down and deal with it. But it do wasn't... you
1: think that, did they do something or do you think they simply continue to be?
2: I think they... St- I think the most Im- inspiring part of what ha- they did for me was that they st- they weren't comfortable, and I knew they weren't comfortable, mm-hmm. and they had moments of really struggling with it that was quite obvious, but they yeah. stuck they didn't leave, yeah. despite the fact that I wouldn't have blamed them if they wanted to at the time because I was very hard to i just i was you know I was just in a very difficult place, mm-hmm. but I feel that you know there is an expression we do talk about it, just don't leave like whatever you mm-hmm. do <laughs> you yeah. get it wrong, say the wrong thing, maybe, but don't. Don't leave. You have to try, and there is another side to it. There is an uh, eventually, and for some people, I think you know, many years, especially people who lose children, it can. It's not a short period of time mm. that they're going to be grieving. Um, no, that's absolutely right, and
1: I think I, that really came home to me in writing these stories. I had to work really hard to anonymize them, yeah, because clearly I didn't have permission to tell those stories. Course, because yeah. how was I going to get no. permission from no. these dead people? Yeah. So I've changed lots and lots of things in all of the stories. People have had, you know, sex changes, job changes, family dynamics changes, all sorts Mm. of things. But there still were a few stories where the thing that would identify the person was also key to the story. Yeah. And so I had to go and find those families. Oh, wow. And that was absolutely astonishing because, well, first of all, I can remember the conversations in great detail, partly because I used to keep notes at Mm. the end of a day of people who were going to stay in my head unless I wrote them out, literally wrote them out. So I have this kind of sheaf of single sheets of A4 of amazing moments, thought-provoking moments, terrible moments. The first baby I delivered is one of them, so they're not all sad, some of them are really, really happy, but they're just huge moments. But because they were on paper, I couldn't write names on them in case I ever lost them. Of course, yeah. So I was phoning people I used to work with, largely nurses I used to work with in different places, saying, do you remember remember this family? This is the backstory. Oh, yes. Oh, now then, she was called so-and-so, and and he was called such-and-such. And some of them are so long ago that the hospital don't have the records anymore. You can't get hold of addresses. And, of course, I wouldn't have been able to contact them direct. I'd have to go via their GP and all the rest of it. Anyway, managed to track all but one of the families d- down. So one of the stories isn't in the book because I, I couldn't yeah. do it. But all of the others, when I eventually made contact, they knew who I was. They talked about the nurses by name who'd helped oh, to look after them. Of course. And some of them were 20 years ago and they still remembered. Yeah. So there's that thing of we're there at a really, really precious and important moment in people's so lives. Much. And we become woven into the folklore afterwards. So I was talking to one young man who'd read the story about one of his parents. And he referred to me as Dr. Catherine because that's who I am in the family stories. And I'm a person in their family stories. That is oh, powerful, absolutely overwhelming too. I imagine too. Yeah. yeah, that's
2: a very yeah. and it's. I mean, certainly the case in my life. Uh, my sister and I would stay up late talking about it, these things for mm. years. We've done it, and the doctors' names are always and the, who they were and the mm. way that they, you know, their disposition. There was a nurse called Sarah that I came in in the middle of the night to visit my dad. He he had terrible nights. He just I think a lot of patients do when they're all lonely. And I walked into the hospice room and uh, she was holding his hand. and They were both crying. They were just having a chat. But they were both crying. She had visible just tears. And her name was Sarah. Shout out to Sarah if she's listening. But like, or, you know, a nurse called Peggy, who was my mother, just, she just, we emailed for years after my mother died Mm. because she just, she just, I don't know. It's hard to explain. She was just, you know, such an incredible person. Unfortunately, we do have to wrap up now because we're limited on time, which I could talk to you for so long. And I really appreciate you coming in to talk to us. And hopefully we will chat to you again sometime soon.
1: I hope so. Thanks ever so much.